0: Let's get right to the education talk, though. And earlier today, Rob Fleming, BC's education minister, was speaking with reporters, reporters on the phone in Victoria, asked uh, repeatedly about this phased-in re-entry and exactly what it's going to look like.
1: We do know that we need some time purely for administrators, uh, those who are doing the timetabling work right now, who are back on the job, uh, working with uh, uh, teachers and support staff, It's about how the school is organized under the new guidelines. It's about uh, promoting the COVID literacy and how people have to look after their own personal uh, practices around hand hygiene and all of the sorts of things that are part of the operating guidelines that are being developed at the school district level. When you get down to the school-based level, uh, we see an advantage to having uh, staff have a couple of days just in their learning teams, just in their... A school setting before we uh, welcome back kids in the first week, on a uh, on a on a phased uh, reentry.
0: All right, that was part of what Education Minister Rob Fleming had to say earlier today. We are joined now by Stephanie Higginson, the president of the BC School Trustees Association. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking some time with us.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: what is your response? Is there any more clarity after hearing from the Education Minister?
2: Well, I think, you know, from the very beginning when the framework was released on July 29th, we said this is the high level and now we need to get down into the de- details and the nitty-gritty. And, and one of the things that uh, knowing that this is a completely different way of organizing schools, we knew that it was going to take some time for folks to... Um, you know, to be able to come in and be comfortable with it, particularly since we have so many collective agreements that that uh, you know say that our many of our staff uh, can't start until after the the first Tuesday after Labor Day. So uh, this really allows that that time for the staff to come into the buildings sit down with their health and safety committees that are going to be working throughout the summer, are currently working on, you know, developing the plan in the schools. And then it'll also, I think what's really important as well is we have a, a lot of students who have not set foot in the building since March 13th, and, uh, and we need to be very respectful of what that experience might be like for them coming in and trying to make sure that we set up a, a, safe, um, a safe opening for students and staff in the buildings.
0: Uh, Do you think two days is enough then with staff, uh, as the education minister uh, said, their staff meeting with the the health and safety committees and and, uh, meeting for those two days before they welcome students back on the 10th?
2: Yeah, the bulk of the the, the bulk of the um, the complex work that needs to get done will be done by you know school administrators who have come back from their holidays early, as well as the health and safety teams who are coming back early, as well as um, union reps uh, to help work out some of the you know if, if districts are going to be switching to quartermester from semester and things like that. A bulk of the bulk of that work will be done, uh, and what people will be coming in to learn is sort of the the same type of thing the minister talked about is how do we how do we operate in this school together and, and what's it look like and how do we be very good role models for our students
0: and has any of that work been done the education minister was asked earlier today as well even about the actual nuts and bolts the in some cases bringing in desks to put desks where perhaps there would have been tables and students would have been sitting around a table or even physically removing shelving units to create more space to be able to distance students is that work already being done
2: uh, you know, they're right at the beginning of that work, and so I think uh, the other thing that's important to remember is that the the more detailed operational guidelines are going to be released on Monday, um, next Monday, and that was always the date that was promised. So a lot of those questions that people, the really detailed questions that people want answers to, particularly staff, um, were always promised to be released in that more detailed Um, operational guidelines that goes out to districts and then they'll get a chance to dig in more with those and and sit down with their health and safety teams and figure out the best way to physically organize the building and that will include things like what you said Um, there they'll know best for each school what they need to do.
0: And as for the actual uh, teaching, and I know the the minister talked about the fact there will be time for practicing, whether it's going from a classroom to an outdoor space, making sure that students know the best way to be able to do that and to to remain distanced as much as they can. Uh, But he also said that it won't necessarily mean when kids come back on the 10th and the 11th, it doesn't mean that classes are going to be in for all day from 9 o'clock or whatever time they start until 3 in the afternoon. Do you have any sense as to when there will be an actual return to all-day school?
2: I would imagine it would start the the following Monday, Uh, you know, that students and parents should expect, you know, what we're really pushing for here is that there is no loss uh, to student learning. Students have been out of school long enough. And it's time for us, like Dr. Henry said. She said we really have to learn um, to live with this virus, and so it's 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 here long term. So all of these plans and and measures are being put into place for all of us to be able to operate in the schools safely. And we need to uh, we need to start student learning as soon as we can. So the the first week is usually, you know, a bit of a different week in school anyway, where students are moving around and trying to get classes, and at the elementary level, students are moving around. So we're going to have to do that differently and make sure students are in their learning groups and in their learning cohorts uh, at the very beginning, and then they can... Hopefully, get, get you know get rolling on on existing in that school and and returning to a sense of normalcy, which we all need to find in, in this uh, in this pandemic long term.
0: And, and do you think we're giving students enough credit? In that you're right, it is completely different. A lot of students haven't been in a classroom since March, but for, for a lot of kids too, this summer they have been going to camps, they have expanded their bubbles, they've gone on vacation, they've gone to restaurants. It's not as though they've been sitting at home isolated for the most part all summer. Uh, so, So is it this being kind of overly cautious that this is going to be a different school year, but the hope being that people will adapt quickly?
2: I think you're, you know, exactly right. While students, many students haven't been living with this virus in the school setting, they've been living with it in their daily lives for months. And so I don't think that it's unreasonable to expect that students can come into the school building and, and learn quite quickly how, uh, how they need to uh, operate within the school setting in a different way. And so I think that's why two days is plenty for, for them to, you know, learn those hygienes. Those we know the stakes are high, so we want to make sure there's enough time. But I think, to your point, you're exactly right. People have been living with this in their daily lives, and so learning how to live with it in the school setting, I think, is a natural transition.
0: And do you think there will be a push, or would you, is there a push for, for mandatory masks in some areas, some parts of the school system?
2: Well, we've certainly heard that call, but like always, anything that is medically related, I think we need to keep um, keep relying on our provincial health office, who's done an exceptional job, and we know Dr. Henry has answered the question on this many times about why. You know, the mask-wearing protocols, how to wear a mask safely, is is they're very robust. (laughs) Uh, You know, wash your hands before you put the mask on and off. When you take the mask off to eat, you have to put the mask in a paper bag. There's, uh, you know, what is an appropriate mask to wear? How long should you wear a mask for before the mask becomes soiled? So I think we need to really think about what safe um, mask wearing protocols are and then apply them to the school setting. And I think that we're starting to see Um, some updates in the guidelines around when masks, and I think Dr. Henry's answered this, when masks should be required or or worn by students. But I will always continue to take our direction from the Provincial Health Office on this because we're educators and we're not medical scientists or epidemiologists. So if they tell us it needs to happen, then I think we should absolutely um, are able to find a way to make it happen.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. Stephanie Higginson, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Have a great day just a reminder, coming up in about a half hour from now at one o'clock, we are expecting to hear from Premier John Horgan as well as Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. We will bring you that news conference live here on CKNW as it happens. So that's coming up at 1 p.m. today. And as you just heard in the news, a cold case file that the B.C. Coroner's Office is hoping people can help them with. We're going to check in with the B.C. Coroner's Office a bit later on in the program to uh, find out a little bit more, not only this particular case, which has an amazing amount of detail about a woman who died at that SkyTrain station and asking for anybody who has information, but we're also going to talk about a tracking tool that the coroner service has that people can go on, not just about that case, but about any cold case in the province. And it might be information that you don't even think is that important, but could be pivotal in trying to solve what happened to that person. So we're going to check in with the coroner service in the final hour of the program today. Andy Watson is going to join us after the two o'clock news. And then I thought, what better story to talk to Eve Lazarus about? She's an author. She's been on the program many times before. Actually, she came on the weekend show when uh, I used to be on the weekends and she is the author of many books one of them being Cold Case Canada that's a podcast she has she also wrote Cold Case Vancouver and some of the stories in there they just send chills up and down your spine because we have so much information about the people that have disappeared in some cases there are homicides but just not that one piece needed to solve the case so we're going to talk about that between 2 and 2.30 this afternoon so stay tuned for that also coming up this half hour, we have some tickets to give away to the Vancouver Aquarium, a big ticket giveaway, a four pack of tickets. We've been giving them away all week. A lot of people want to get their hands on those tickets. They are good for four people and some new protocols are in place at the aquarium. You have to go for a certain amount of time. You can't just wander around endlessly. It is a time uh, timed out venue, the time that you have at the venue. And it's a one-way tour through the aquarium. So you can stop and look at the creatures, but you're not going back the same way you came as they make sure that everybody is physically distanced. Well, speaking of animals, a new partnership was revealed today. And this involves the BCSBCA and a new way that people can put forward anonymous tips and do their part to stop animal cruelty, unfortunately, when they see it. So let's bring in Sean Eccles, Senior Manager of Cruelty Investigations at the BC SPCA Sean's with us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Oh, thank you for inviting me on. Uh,
0: so you've teamed up with Crime Stoppers. Is this new that people can report through Crime Stoppers or is it a different way of doing it now?
3: Well, it's not new. Crime Stoppers has always accepted tips on animal cruelty. What what has what is new about this is that we're actually publicizing it now to try and ensure that we're we're Uh, getting as many opportunities out there for people to call us when, when they think it's necessary.
0: And so what was announced today that is kind of another tool in the toolbox for people?
3: And Well, it's just that people can contact Crime Stoppers. They can leave an anonymous tip with Crime Stoppers. They can either utilize their phone number or if they've downloaded their app, they can send an email. There's a number of different ways that people can report animal abuse or neglect here in the province of BC. We've always had our own call center and our cruelty hotline that people have been able to call. But we do find that there's a lot of people that want to report anonymously, and they're quite concerned about leaving their information when they call us. So this is just another um, avenue for us to, to utilize in order to, for us to combat animal cruelty in the province of British Columbia.
0: And I guess that's not a huge surprise. If you're witnessing somebody doing something cruel to an animal, uh, you would only know, only imagine what they might do to you if they found out that you were the one that reported them or you were getting involved.
3: Well, certainly that, that would be an issue. And, and that seems to be when most people want to report anonymously, That that's because they don't want to be bringing any attention onto to themselves, whether it's to protect themselves from any sort of retribution, whether that be physical or verbal. Uh, and so this is just an, an opportunity now for people to be able to do that. We do, certainly when we're investigating people, uh, cruelty to animals. We do like to be able to talk to the complainant and get more details because sometimes on anonymous complaints, we don't get enough information. It's hard for us to actually track some of this stuff down. But Absolutely. We, we have always uh, investigated anonymous tips, and we will continue to investigate anonymous tips. And this is just, a, a, as you indicated, this is just a new tool in the toolbox.
0: What should somebody keep in mind, though, if you are putting forward an anonymous tip, what kind of information is crucial for investigators with the SPCA to then follow up on?
3: Well, certainly we, we need to know, we need to have a date we need to have a time. We need to have a location. Uh, often we will get complaints from people that have seen things on the internet and the problem with the internet is it's just global. And so we don't investigate any offenses outside of the province of British Columbia. So a date, a time, what they actually saw or what they, what they believe they saw, any of those sorts of things that may lead them to have some concern about an animal that may be in distress in the province of B.C.
0: And so if somebody saw something, say, on a rural property or they were driving down a road and they saw something that looked questionable, is it up to the person then they would need to get you a specific address? They couldn't just call and say, I was driving on this road and, and describe a building or something like that?
3: Well, they certainly can, and our operators are trained to try and pull out as much information as they can from the callers. And, and I can't speak to, to Crime Stoppers when they're doing this, but certainly as much information as possible is helpful. An address or a location, uh, any sort of a geographic address or some uh, landmark may, may be helpful. All of those things will help us in trying to determine where that animal may be in distress.
0: And what kind of thing, people might wonder too, oh, well, if I see uh, the difference, I guess, between neglect and actual cruelty, is it, if you think it's, if it if it doesn't sit right with you, report it, err on the side of caution and report it?
3: Absolutely. You know, what I heard this morning from Linda Annis with Crime Stoppers was, if you see it, say it. So, Report it to us. It may not be distressed, but it very well may be, and this may be that last opportunity that that animal has somebody to intervene in its life if it's necessary. So, don't feel bad about reporting. Just report, and we will make a determination as to whether or not it is actually a a a valid tip. But certainly, every one of those tips will be forwarded to us, and we will review those tips and we will investigate. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, they they may not be fully justified tips, but there are enough that just our presence may even alter uh, the life of an animal.
0: Have you noticed any difference during the pandemic as far as the number of cases or what you're seeing?
3: Well, it's certainly something that we started thinking about, you know, is this what we're going to see? And we've done some of our uh, analysis on our, our calls that are coming in, and we're we're not seeing that. And we're not sure why we're not, because certainly that that seems to be anecdotally what people are believing or or we're hearing on on TV or on radio but i i think maybe a big part of it is is people are hesitant to report and this just gives you an opportunity now to report and we'll look at it we're not seeing an increase in in physical abuse cases we 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 feel that we are but our statistics don't actually bear that out so Certainly, if you see something, say something. We want to, pardon the pun, we want to unleash this to its full potential.
0: <laughs> All right. No, you, could, you can use the puns there. That's absolutely okay. Uh, Sean, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks for joining us to talk about this.
3: Well, thanks very much. And, and really, if people do have a concern about animals uh, that are abused or neglected anywhere in the province of BC, they can contact Crime Stoppers or they can contact our one 622 7722 phone number and our call centre operators will take their call.
0: All right. Sounds good, Sean. Thanks again. Much. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, an ultimatum from the Bloc leader, Yves-François Blanchet, saying if the Prime Minister, his Chief of Staff, and Finance Minister Bill Morneau don't resign over the We Charity scandal, he will attempt to trigger an election in October. And Global Ottawa's Bureau Chief, Mercedes Stevenson, has been covering this today. Uh, and the fact that he's come out and and largely in many cases has been the one who is propping
2: the government up. I mean, that's increasingly been the NDP lately as we've seen more of a gap built
0: between the bloc and the NDP uh, and the government. But, um, you know, if he sides with the Conservatives, they have a big problem. David Moskrop is the author of Too Dumb for Democracy. He is also a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa and joins me once again. David, thanks so much for being with us again.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Uh, You've been tweeting about this, weighing in on this as well. What are your thoughts on this ultimatum?
1: Well, I mean, first we have to distinguish between Good reasons for triggering elections and, and bad reasons because I think most of us don't want an election right now myself included but it doesn't mean there aren't potentially good reasons for having one the the we scandal it's not obvious to me is a good reason um, now we can take the cynical view of this or the, the less cynical view of this the cynical view of this looks at it and says why would Blanchet do this the we scandal is not going over well for the Liberals in Quebec maybe he thinks he can improve his position Although I don't know how you do that. He's part of the balance of power in a minority parliament. The less cynical position is he truly believes that the government uh, ought not to have the confidence of the commons and therefore has a duty to bring down the government. The truth is probably somewhere in between.
0: Is it? Do you think, too, with, with people watching this, voters, uh, Canadians watching this, that there's, there's some happy medium there in that people do want some action? They want somebody held accountable to what we're learning, it seems, every day with the We Charity scandal. Maybe not to the extent of having a full federal election, but something needs to be done?
1: Well, I, I think people are... There's something about this that has caught national attention and ire, and I think part of it is... Um, people look at, for instance, the finance minister and him forgetting to repay $41,000 and not realizing he hadn't. And people, especially during the pandemic, can't pay their rent or their mortgage or you know are, are busting their backs to try to work. And it feels like there's, you know, the Ottawa insiders are out of touch with everybody. Uh, I do think there needs to be some accountability. I think it ought to be that the finance minister resigns. And I think there's good reason on top of that for him to go, because if you believe the reports, there's a lot of clashes between the prime minister who wants to be more progressive on pandemic response plans than the finance minister who's trying to restrain things a little bit more. So I do think that, that at the very least, the finance minister has to go. But if we're going to be talking about an election, I think we should be talking about it in terms of the, the pandemic recovery plan and the measures to date and whether or not they're adequate, not whether or not the we scandal ought to bring down the government.
0: Well, and you make a point in uh, some of the comments that you've been making on this as well, that this pandemic's not going anywhere anytime soon. And there is going to come a time when we're going to need, we will be having elections during a pandemic.
1: Without a doubt. And I mean, the, the world will be, right? I mean, we're, we're all watching with interest in the United States. I mean, uh, I mean at least those of us who can't um, help ourselves, mm that the american election is ongoing and it's coming up in three months or so uh, canada is facing elections provincially and federally within that pandemic tier, period too right i mean the, the public health officials are talking about the pandemic stretching into 2023 potentially uh, in some sense or another so we we will have elections during the pandemic of course there is a difference between having one say now and a year from now when electoral bodies agencies have had time to prepare But the good news is we have some of the best elections in the world in this country, if not the best elections. Elections Canada is competent and they're preparing. I mean, I know for a fact that they are working very diligently on a plan to address these things. So we will be able to have safe elections in this country at some point. Although, of course, the longer we have to prepare, the better.
0: Right. Because you would think if we can open up bars and restaurants and we can find a way to bring major sports back, we should be able to figure out how to have an election.
4: Well, well, exactly.
1: And I mean, we have to right? the fact is we are constitutionally obligated to hold elections and parliamentarians are morally obligated to bring down the government if they feel that the government uh, cannot do its job, if they've lost their confidence in the government. So, you know, it's going to happen. It has to happen. We are an industrialized country. We have plenty of resources. We have plenty of of capacity. We just need some time to figure it out. But again, you know, it's encouraging to know that we weren't dilly-dallying on planning for this. You know, once this happened, Elections Canada moved into high gear to figure it out. So I have a lot of faith that we can figure this out. Uh, But then again, we have no choice. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what about the just where we are right now uh, with the the block uh, threatening this saying something needs to happen and calling for those resignations i mean it seems like in a very short period of time we've gone from a position where uh, the trudeau government had everything to lose he was doing his daily briefings he was handing out money to everybody that needed money even to people who didn't and his popularity was so high that's taken a huge hit with the we charity scandal how did we get to this point
1: Well, we're a fickle bunch. I mean, you know, look back. Well, look, think of the Second World War. I mean, Winston Churchill was defeated after winning the Second World War or contributing to winning the Second World War. Uh, George H.W. Bush had approval ratings in the 90s during the Iraq War by the 1992 uh, election. He was done for Uh, George uh, W. Bush after 9-11 had approval ratings in the 90s and and, um, you know, he would never have been reelected a third time if that were constitutionally possible. So, you know, we're, we're a fickle lot. In, in terms of, of the prime minister, I think people cut government slack um, in the middle of crises, and they'll continue to. But this scandal resonated with a lot of people, and it piled up on top of everybody's worst uh, conceptions of this government already, right? I think the three strikes narrative was doing a lot of work here, too. That this is the third time we've been to this rodeo, <laughs> and people have really had enough And I think it probably doubly uh, resonated because everyone is struggling right now. And this looks like a privileged insiders club doing what they always do. And so you lose a lot of goodwill real fast. But the ultimate question will be this. Even if people are irritated by this, even if people are angry with this, are they going to vote for someone else because of it? I think that's an open question.
0: Well, and even if we look at what's happening uh, w- in the House today with a reduced number of people back, the Prime Minister's not there. It's likely going to be uh, Andrew Shears last time as the leader of the official opposition. Uh, and that party t- is still trying to come up f- with a new leader. It doesn't seem like the timing would be that great uh, under that scenario. Well, you know, I mean, of course,
1: as, as you sort of in- intimate, I mean, the, the BQ can't bring down the government on its own. It needs a partner. And that would either be the NDP or the Conservatives, or both. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, who's running to be Conservative leader, who will probably lose, but you never know, uh, has said that this government needs to be, quote-unquote, put it out of its misery. So it's possible the Conservatives would like an election, and they think things are going to go badly for so the Liberals will not have a shot in the fall. I cannot imagine in what world the NDP wants one. And Charlie Angus, for instance, an NDP MP, has come out and said, what we need to be doing is holding the government to account in the Commons. We don't want an election. So I, I suspect... The Conservatives are more likely to want one than the NDP. But I think they'll be waiting until their leadership race is over, obviously, and seeing what kind of position they're in before they make any move on that.
0: All right. uh, David, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Always my pleasure. That is David Moscrop. He is the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, also uh, the host of Open to Debate, a columnist and a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. We are going to open up the phone lines when we come back. What are your thoughts uh, about the threats made from the Bloc Québécois saying resignations? Or we will head to the polls. Would you want to go to the polls, have a federal election at this point? And the inevitability, there will be elections during a pandemic. Do you think they can be done safely? How can they be done safely? Here we are trying to figure out how to get students back in school. Would we be able to do a safe election, either provincially or federally? Start 9898 on your cell 604-280-9898. We will take your calls right after the break.
5: Global News Time, it's two o'clock. Good afternoon, I'm Emily Lazatin. The province is hiring 500 additional contact tracers to increase contact tracing in BC. The announcement comes as we see an increase in COVID-19 cases and as the province prepares for back-to-school and a possible second wave.
0: You're seeing in Vancouver right now is reflected in the numbers that we've seen in the last little while, where there's been exposure events where larger numbers of people have been exposed and public health has been advising people to go and get tested, Um, particularly if you've been in one of these places where there's been exposures, known exposures. So we are seeing quite a lot of people going for testing. We've seen the numbers increase in people being tested.
5: Dr. Bonnie Henry has often said contact tracing is the most essential work being done by public health to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Meanwhile, the start of school will be pushed back two days for B.C. students. They're now expected to return September 10th. More from Global's Richard Zussman.
4: B.C. students will be getting two extra days of
1: summer holidays. Education Minister Rob Fleming announcing the start of school has been pushed back to allow administrators and teachers and staff a few days together to prepare for the start of school. It was something that parents and administrators and teachers had been asking for, and now the province confirming that those extra days are coming. One of the reasons why is because the province wants to ensure that updated health and safety protocols are implemented and to ensure kids who require extra support are prioritized and receive the services they need. Richard Sussman, Global News, Victoria.
5: Harbour Dance Centre in Vancouver is closed because of COVID-19 exposure. One of the instructors tested positive yesterday. They likely contracted it at a dance community party on August 2nd, according to a statement. As well, a student tested positive upon their return to China. Possible exposure dates include August 4, 6, 7 and 8. The dance centre will be closed for at least 10 days. The B.C. Coroner's Service and Vancouver police hope a new appeal will crack a 22-year-old case involving the death of a woman at the Broadway SkyTrain station. The woman has remained unidentified since her death in April 1998. Investigators hope someone will recognize her description. They say she was white, between 30 and 40 years old, between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 7, with brown hair, blue eyes, and unpierced ears. The coroner's service website carries an artist's facial reconstruction image of the woman, and investigators hope his re- the request for information will lead to details that could identify her. Ford is recalling more than 558,000 Ford Edge and Lincoln MX. Kex vehicles in the U.S. and Canada. Ford says more than a half million 2015 to 2018 Ford Edge and 2016 to 2018 Lincoln MKX vehicles may have brake issues. The automaker says some front brake hoses can rupture, causing brake fluid to leak, and that could make it more difficult to stop the vehicles. There are no known injuries as a result. Ford wants drivers to make sure they check their brake fluid and beware of any warning lights. They'll be sending out notifications for service in September. Ryan Burrow, ABC News. U.S. federal prosecutors have announced charges against three men accused of threatening and intimidating women who have accused R&B singer R. Kelly of abuse.
1: Federal prosecutors in Brooklyn said R. Kelly's longtime friend, Richard Arlene, offered a woman a half million dollars to keep her from cooperating. Another friend, Anel Russell, allegedly threatened to reveal sexually explicit photographs of a second accuser if she did not withdraw her lawsuit against Kelly. A third man, Michael Williams, set fire to a car in Florida that prosecutors said was part of a campaign to harass, intimidate, threaten, or corruptly influence the alleged victims in the racketeering case against R. Kelly. Defense attorney said the singer, who was pleaded not guilty, had nothing to do with this. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York.
5: Global news time is 2.04. Now the latest Sam 730 traffic. Good afternoon. Watch out for a car that ran out of gas on the Lions Gate Bridge, southbound at the north end in the middle lane. It is causing delays in both directions. And good news over at the Massey Tunnel. Cleared the maintenance work northbound at the north end, and traffic is now starting to ease off a little bit. You're going to see delays northbound on Highway 99 on the approach to the tunnel from about the Delta Works Yard. Still, the Alex Fraser Bridge is an excellent alternate route if you plan on taking Highway 91 to access it. And still dealing with this rollover crash in Vancouver on the boundary exit from eastbound Highway 1. The Love You by Shoppers Drug Mart program is committed to advancing women's health. Visit shoppersdrugmart.ca slash loveyou to learn more. I'm Tristie Wilson in the AM730 Traffic Center. Your latest Global Sky Tracker weather now mainly cloudy today 20 degrees down to 11 tonight tomorrow it's a mix of sun and cloud clearing near noon for a high of 21 and your extended forecast Friday Saturday Sunday sunshine clear skies between 21 and 26 degrees and it's up to 30 inland on Sunday On the markets now, the Dow is up 289, the TSX up 78, Canadian dollar currently at 75.52 cents U.S. Global News Time is just about 2.06. I'm Emily Lazatin.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, I saw a news release come out this morning from the B.C. Coroner's Service, and it was asking for the public's help in a cold case. It was a woman, and not a whole lot is known about her. A deceased woman, she was found in a red hooded coat. We know that she was wearing that coat when she died. It has been 24 years, though, and police have not been able to figure out who this woman was. And this isn't the only case like this. From time to time, we see these news releases with these, in many cases, very full description of what somebody was wearing, their jewelry, their height, what we think they looked like. In this case, there's a composite sketch of what the woman might have looked like. And still, it can be so difficult to solve those cases. So let's bring in Andy Watson, the manager of strategic communications with the BC Coroner Service. Andy, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Taking the airtime to, to share this important information, it's appreciated.
0: Well, I, whenever I look at these or, or see these, I'm always filled with so many questions and, and so uh, almost intrigued by this because there are so many details in the release that you send out that it seems so surprising almost that, that, it, that there isn't somebody whose memory is jogged or, or somebody that has come forward.
4: Yeah, I think one of the things that happens in these in these cold cases is that over a period of time uh, a number of pieces of information come in and so one of the goals today by releasing uh, updated information is that the hope is that the combination of that information may solicit some memories from people um and again this is a this is a case that's unfortunately, you know, just over two decades old and That means that there is a family and that there are friends out there that still don't have the answers they're looking for. And the hope today is by by sharing this information from the death in April of 1998 that we're we're able to to get some more clues to generate enough, enough information to ultimately conclude the investigation and bring closure to families.
0: And in this case, so we don't know how this woman died?
4: Based on the information we have, we suspect it's a suicide death. Um, of course, until we fully conclude our investigation, that's uh, you know that's that's not uh, the the official cause of death because we'd have to conclude that uh, with all the information we have available. But based on the information we have and that we've collected, it appears it was a suicide. And uh, you know we've had uh, over the over the course of the last you know twenty twenty five years, we have had a, a number of suicide deaths at uh, uh, at or near SkyTrain um, stations. So. Um, this is this is a situation where we try and treat that very delicately because we are aware that, you know, by sharing information on, on, on the cause of death with suicides that it can trigger for some people and so off the top by sharing that. I also want to remind people that, that may be in crisis that there are uh, great resources out there like the BC Crisis Health uh, Hotline. You can call 24-7. Uh, for youth, there's a specific crisis hotline. Uh, but I think, you know, any time we run into these unidentified remains investigations, ultimately what we try to do with all of our partners involved, whether that's police agencies or or other investigating bodies, we, we want to make sure that we're able to gather enough information to ultimately conclude these. And, you know, an unfortunate situation, um, you know, it's our understanding that the decedent is a Caucasian female. Uh, she was believed to have been between 30 and 40 years old. And this incident happened at the Broadway SkyTrain station in Vancouver about six o'clock on April eleventh, nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, we've been able to, as you said off the top, provide a, a, a facial composite sketch, uh, working with police to get that. And uh, so we posted that to our website. Um, you can Google BC Coroner's Service Special Investigations Unit, and it's the nineteen ninety-eight unidentified case listed online the the challenge i think in any of these is you know over the course of time you know t- over two decades has transpired so You know, we want to share this information to try and re-jog someone's memory or maybe somebody felt uncomfortable coming forward in the past that may have witnessed this. Um, There could be any sort of possibility. But ultimately, you know, there's some really distinctive things that our investigations unit and the police have been able to pull together. One of those being a very characteristic red wool coat, which had a hood on it. Uh, She was also wearing a pair of blue jeans and a pair of Cougar brand black boots. And so, again, very distinct Uh, She stood between five foot six and five foot seven. She had dark brown hair and blue eyes with unpierced ears. So a lot of clues there. Um, And certainly um, we're hopeful today that this will jog someone's memory and and ultimately lead to some additional information or maybe a number of pieces of information that help us to, to get a little bit closer to concluding this investigation.
0: And I know on the website, too, you've also got that tool that helps with other uh, more than I guess it's almost 200 other investigations that are ongoing throughout BC that people can look and get more information. Do, Do you find do you do people contact the coroner's service? Do you get the information you generally are looking for when you put this out there?
4: Yeah, you know, it's it's a really case by case basis. Last year as you mentioned, we we launched this unidentified human remains viewer app and this this project has created the closure for a couple of grieving uh families already uh where we've been able to conclude two investigations. Uh we're currently still pursuing about 15 active leads, but I can tell you that we've had more than 200,000 views uh through this tool already basically what it does is it plots different deaths that where we haven't been able to determine the identity and combines the power of uh, you know the GIS or geographical information systems technology with the existing st- statistical and temporal information that we have from our open investigations so it's combining the the science and and the technology that's available Ultimately, trying to find that missing puzzle piece where we can where we can conclude an investigation. Uh, about 180 investigations remain open of this type. Um, other things that we'll look to do, um, and and we'll do this with the the SkyTrain death at Broadway Station from 1998. We'll also try and post information to Canada's missing website. Which is another tool that's out there to try and help conclude investigations, so with the release we sent out today on on the female between thirty and forty years old from nineteen ninety eight uh, we're going to be sharing that information there as well uh, but I mean I think ultimately you know it depends it's a case by case basis when we do this, what kind of information we can get uh, interestingly, we were about to put out another release last week um Langley r c m p had uh received a tip the day before we put out a release that we were looking for some information on. And uh, because of a release they put out at the end of June, we were able to conclude another uh, previously cold case. So it's just nice to have all of these different pieces of information come forward. And, and, and one by one, our, our goal is ultimately to move that number from 180 down to 0 uh, it may even not be a realistic goal, but it's certainly something that we're trying to uh, accomplish. Um, and, and we're hopeful that any time we put one of these out uh, that we'll be able to uh, conclude and provide closure and ultimately do our job to identify the deceased as one of the things that we do in any death investigation.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. I know you have a busy day, but thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That is Andy Watson, manager of strategic communications at the BC Coroner's Service. So, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to continue talking about this because this case immediately made me think of Eve Lazarus. She is an author. She's written books about cold cases. She has a podcast about cold cases right across the country. I wanted to get her take on when we have information like this, the likelihood or what it takes to actually find out who the person was. We're going to check in with Eve when we come back.